This is the Purpose Church podcast where we exist to help every person live on purpose. It is our prayer that this message helps you experience God in a brand new way. Amen. Well, today we're starting a brand new series called Culture Wars. Everybody say Culture Wars. And the video said it all. There is a war between kingdom culture and the culture that we live in. And there's a tension there. There's a tension there. And the Bible speaks to it very, very clearly. And we're going to dive in straight into it today in, in the message called The Battle of Apathy. The Battle of Apathy. There are four battles that we're going to highlight in the war. You know, wars are made up of a series of dozens, if not more, battles. And we're talking about the battle of apathy today. The battle of apathy. Today is all about declaring war on casual Christianity. Declaring war on casual Christianity. And we are going to fight for vibrant Christianity. They are very, very different. Let's look at our anchor verse. Every week when you hear the message, whoever's speaking is going to let you know what this anchor verse is, and this is the powerful anchor verse, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Everybody say transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Let me read it to you out of a couple more translations. Let's just, di- let's just drill this down deep a little bit. In the voice translation, it says, do not allow this world to mold you into its own image. Because when you dive into it in the Greek, when it talks about not conforming, it literally means to be placed into a mold. And so this translation brings that out a little bit. Do not allow the world to mold you into its own image. Instead, be transformed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. Look at it in the Passion Translation. Stop imitating the ideals and opinions of culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit through a total reformation of how you think. I don't think the Bible's mincing any words here. I think it's very, very clear when it's talking to us about being in the world, but not of the world. Let's start off with this by, this, really this point. It's not even a kingdom point. It's just a point of life. All of us are being shaped by something. Every one of us are being shaped by something or someone. It's either culture and its ideals and ways of life, or it's the word of God and God's ideals and words and way of life. It's, it's either our experiences are shaping us and our experiences are what's key to us, or it's what God is saying to us. Something is always shaping you. That's why Romans 12, 2 is, is very clear that you and I choose to be transformed. God will not force himself on you to transform you. You and I choose to be transformed. It says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. But we have an issue here, and it's called apathy. Everyone say apathy. Apathy is not defined as something that is super negative. When you, think, when you and I think of someone who's apathetic, like I was, when, before I studied this out even a little more, I, 
I thought when someone was apathetic that they were like super negative all the time and, and, and they were just against things. Actually, apathy, apathetic means acceptance of the status quo. Someone who's apathetic is indifferent. It could be great. I know I could be great, but sounds like a lot of work. I don't really want to do that. It, it could be better, but I just don't know if I've got the time or the energy. I just really don't want to go there. I could be great, but, but I'm okay. I think back to my middle child, Levi, when he was playing soccer the first time. Now, he was little. I think he was four when we put him in. So he, he was little bitty, and, and it's just chaos. I don't know if you've ever been to little kids' soccer games. It is, you pay for complete chaos. It makes no sense. But they have fun, allegedly, except for Levi, um, because the whole team, everyone is running, trying to chase the ball, and Levi's like, nah. So what he decided to do was he was in the middle of the soccer field on all fours, literally eating grass, pretending to be a rodeo bull. Then the next week, he was pretending to be a tiger, and he, they would run by with the ball, and he would go <laughs> in the middle of the field. And then it, when it was my turn to bring snacks, I just like dumped them and ran, like, don't let anybody know. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was pretty funny. I thought back to that when I was thinking about apathy, because it was like, I, I don't care. My daughter didn't even care about soccer. She doesn't care about sports at all. Um, she, she, she does not care. In fact, when she was playing soccer, she brought pom-poms to the soccer game. And it was especially embarrassing because Kelly was the coach. And so could, a kid, coach's kid didn't even want to play, but she'll cheer on the kids who want to play. I've just thought back to Levi and his attitude towards soccer, and I was thinking about apathy. Because Levi was comfortable in what he was doing. That, that was his zone. He, he still, to this day, pretends to be a bucking bull and bucks around the house and knocks things over and, and watches bucking bull videos on YouTube. And it's just, I'm not sure what the obsession is, but he enjoys it. But he, he was apathetic towards soccer, did not care at all. And I began to think about how many of us are apathetic toward the thing that we are in the middle of. How many of us are indifferent to the thing that we're in the middle of? Apathy, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's not on the screen, but write it down. Apathy loves comfort above all else. Apathy loves comfort. Look at what Eli Weasel said. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death. It's indifference. Apathy loves comfort, thus making it indifferent because we don't move any direction except for what is comfortable. Apathy is so sneaky and so dangerous because it creeps in unaware. And we find ourselves just going with what is most comfortable. It sits back and scrolls while the world around us is burning down all around us. And to fight apathy, you and I need passion and hunger. We need a passion for the local church. We need a passion to fight for our marriages. We need a passion. We need a passion inside of us to rise up. And we need a hunger inside of us to see the things of God. But you and I don't like being hungry. 
I don't like being hungry. That's why they call it hangry, right? Anybody ever been hangry? And the Snickers commercial lies. That does not satisfy anything. It just makes you more angry because you just want real food. You and I, when we start to feel hungry, what do we do? We do something to fix that feeling. We don't want to be hungry, so we do something to fix it. We don't like to feel hungry, but our spirit needs to be hungry for the things of God. There needs to be a hunger for God's presence because apathy will never change the world. Indifference changes nothing. But hunger and passion have to be cultivated Hunger and passion have to be developed. What happens is, this is very true, what happens is you and I get full on all the other things around us. So we're not hungry. We get full on everything else that the world has to offer us, and we try to satisfy ourselves with everything that's at our fingertips. Then we come into the presence of God, and we don't have any room left for him. That's why we do 21 days of prayer and fasting to cultivate our hunger for God. So I'm gonna talk to you today about that straight out of the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation. I think I've preached out of the book of Revelation maybe twice in our church's six-year history. In Revelation, John is, writing to the, John is writing the words of Jesus. And Jesus was speaking to seven churches. We're gonna look at five of those seven today. These letters, these short letters I believe, hold the key to winning the battle of apathy. We're gonna identify what the battle is being waged against. So let's first look at the church. So the letter was to the church at Ephesus. To the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2, verses two through five. I know all that you've done for me. You've worked hard and persevered. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Isn't he nice? I know that you don't tolerate evil. You know what, God? You're right. I really don't. Thank you for noticing that. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and proved they're not, for they were imposters. You know what? I do have a prophetic gift. God, you're so nice and so good to me. I know how you've bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name, and you've not become discouraged. God, you've been my rock. I'm with you, God. And then here comes Jesus. But I have this against you. Didn't see that coming. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. Think about how far you have fallen. Remember, we're declaring war on casual Christianity by fighting the battle of apathy. When it comes to apathy, God is trying to do something in our lives to speak to us, to move in us, but you and I are distracted. If you're writing notes, write that down. We're distracted. That was Ephesus' problem. They were doing some good things over here, but something distracted them and they wandered off. They have forgotten their first love. And throughout scripture, we see people who gave up their divine assignment because their appetite for other things was out of control. Look at Eve in Genesis 3, 6. She lost the role that God had designed her to walk in. Esau in Hebrews 12 literally gave up his birthright for a bowl of beans. Israel in Numbers chapter 11 said that they craved the good things of Egypt more than the things of God. So here's the battle plan. For every 
For everything that God says, I have this against you, he has a remedy. He's got a prescription. He's got a battle plan. Here's the battle plan of Revelations 2.5. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. Remove things from your life that are stealing your attention. And I love that God is so loving and God is so kind that he gives us a way out. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. So let's look at it all on one screen. Take a look here. We're gonna build on this church by church by church. So the church at Ephesus, they, they were doing right. There was hard work. There was perseverance. They, they, they stayed encouraged. They, they tested the spirits. But this I have against you, you're busy. You're distracted. You've left your first love. Their root sin was distraction allowing themselves to be distracted and that Jesus' remedy for them is to repent and return to passion. Now the church at Pergamum, the church at Pergamum, to the church at Pergamum he writes in, in Revelation 2, verse 13 through 15, I know where you live, where Satan sits enthroned, yet you still cling faithfully to the power of my name. You did not deny your faith in me even in the days of my faithful martyr Antipas who was executed in your city where Satan lives. I don't guess Jesus likes the city very much. He's mentioned it twice. And then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to eat things that were sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Furthermore, you have some who hold to the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, now, you gotta dig into this because this doesn't make any sense to a Western Christian reading it at face value. So you have to dig into it. You owe it to yourself to really read the Bible in detail and to dig in, get a good study Bible and really dig into what the Bible says. To the message at the, to, to the church at Pergamum, the, there was a wake-up call to them because they had been compromised. They were living lives of compromise. How do we know that? Well, we study out the teaching of Balaam. Is it okay if we do a little Bible study for a minute? They were teaching, the teaching of Balaam. Balaam was all about getting people to compromise their faith through sin. He was a total distraction. In Numbers 25, one through three, we see this happen to the Israelites when Balaam seduced the people of God into unbridled, sensual living. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they, the daughters of Moab, called the people, the men of Israel, unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people, the men of Israel, did eat and bowed down to their gods. So the cross-reference there is teaching us that Balaam was all about getting them to believe maybe your faith isn't the only faith. It's, it's not bad to take things from here and there and there as long as you're a good person. As long as you talk to your own God a little bit. But then we dig into the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I think is very much a compromise as well. So Balaam was trying to compromise them to sin. The Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was to compromise their doctrine, to compromise their faith. He taught that a total separation between Christianity, the occult, and Gnosticism was not essential. That you, you could literally 
Consider yourself a Gnostic, which is, Gnostic is just, it's from the Greek word gnosis, which means deep knowledge. Salvation comes through your knowledge. Salvation comes through your deep thinking, that you can literally think your way out of a problem, you can, you can think good thoughts and they come to you. Y'all remember that book, The Secret, and then they made a movie about The Secret, and it was all about positive attraction? And, and America, if anything, is Nicolaitan. Just think good thoughts and it'll come to you. Uh, Kelly and I, when we were in high school, we liked to do dangerous things. One of the dangerous things that we did was we were curious that there was this weird looking church slash temple thing on 42nd Street and we were like, what is that place? And so we just decided to walk in and figure out what this place is because we were just so dangerous. Well, the door was locked and we were like, well, let's go next door. That looks like the parsonage or whatever. We knock on the door and the door opens real creepy-like, like a movie. And there's this short lady with long gray hair. She might as well have been riding a broom. Scared me half to death. She's like, yes. Been smoking her whole life. Her voice was deeper than anybody else's, you know. Yes. We were like, we were wondering, what is this place? And she's like, let me show you. And I'm like, oh my God, we're gonna die. We're the next sacrifice. So we went in anyway, and she takes us into the, to the temple slash church, and there was this, long, there was this tall tower, and it had hanging from it this pendulum, and it had ashes in it, and the pendulum was supposed to be moving, but she said it symbolized all the deep thinkers of the world, and it was supposed to be moving, but it was broken, and it was in need of repair. I was like, does anybody else see the irony here? And so she, she tells us that their all-important pendulum is broken. So she takes us over to this wall and shows us this wall. There are hundreds of frames on this wall. And there's pictures of people like Martin Luther King Jr. And there, there's, there, you see people like Nostradamus up there. And, and when we started to get a little freaked out was when we saw a picture of Adolf Hitler framed and then Peter Rabbit. And she said, anybody who joins our fellowship that believes in a great thinker can frame their picture and stick the great thinker on the great thinking wall. I was like, <laughs> wow. Uh, so you know those coexist bumper stickers? It was this kind of place. Or anybody who believes in anything can, can get to heaven in their own way. That's, this is Gnosticism. It's still happening today. The doctor of the Nicolaitans is still happening today. And to end the story, we survived and we left and got married, have kids, now you're here. So it was, I think that there's something powerful that you and I need to understand. The devil doesn't have any new tricks. He just keeps reinventing the same thing. The doctor of the Nicolaitans is still alive today. And in Revelation 2.15, he says, Thou hast held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Jesus himself has just told you something he hates. We hardly ever talk about Jesus and hate in the same sentence. So it's obvious that you and I should pay attention to that. If Jesus says, I hate that, then you and I owe it to ourselves to dig in and study what the Bible has to say about that thing he hates. And the thing he hates is Gnosticism, trying to think yourself your own God. 
So the church at Pergamum, look at, look at our table again. They, they didn't deny their faith in the midst of intense persecution, that's great, but they held to some pretty bad teachings. And then they had compromised themselves. And what was the battle plan? Their battle plan was to repent. We see that in Revelation 2.16. So repent then, or I will come quickly to war against them with the sword of my mouth. The Greek word for repent is the Greek word metanoia. It doesn't mean to just simply change your mind. It means to take another mind. Every believer needs to turn from his or her error, but also to take another mind, to put on the mind of Christ. To the church at Thyatira, Revelation 2, 19 through 20, I know all that you've done for me, your love, your faith, your ministry, your steadfast perseverance. In fact, you now excel in these virtues even more than at first. Isn't that great? That's good news, everybody. That really is good. But this I have against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. I can't say Jezebel normally. I have to say it that way. She calls herself a prophetess and is seducing my loving servants. She is teaching that it is permissible to indulge in sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And the message translation says, but why do you let that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet mislead my dear servants into cross-denying, self-indulging religion? Cross-denying, self-indulging religion. There are actually sects of Christianity that will teach you that there's no hell, thus denying the cross, and they will teach self-indulgence as the way to heaven, that whatever feels good, do it because Jesus died so you could have this freedom, there, there's hardly anything more untrue than that. Jezebel had thousands of ministers and prophets, and we remember that because Elijah faced 850 of them on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. Her influence in the church at Thyatira was strong, and they were weak against her influence, even though they had persevered through other trials as Jesus himself had already noted. The message here was that the church was doing great things, but if you're taking notes, they were tolerant of sin. They were tolerant of sin, meaning their church was baptizing people, but nobody would hold anybody accountable. So their baptism numbers and their salvation numbers looked high, but everybody's living in their own filth and nobody will say a word. It's very important that you and I understand that the church of Jesus Christ will change a person when it is truly received. And if our lives don't change, if our lives don't start to look different, you've gotta ask the question, did you really experience Jesus in the first place? Do our lives look different? So back to our table, the church at Thyatira, they had big love and they had steadfast perseverance They'd sown considerable growth in virtue, but they tolerated Jezebel. They were tolerant of sin. And then Jesus tells them to repent, to repent. So we see repent and return, and then we see repent and repent. So we're seeing a lot of take on my mind, take on my mind, take on my mind. To the church at Sardis, Revelation chapter three, verses one through three. I know all that you do and all that you have a reputation for, 
And if he stopped right there, you and I would go, thank you. That's so great. You know, our church's Instagram is just blowing up. Everybody's liking and resharing and following. It's amazing. And then he says, you have a reputation for being really alive, but you're actually dead. Thank you, Jesus. And then he says, wake up and strengthen all that remains before it dies. So you're actually doing things for the kingdom. You're doing outreaches. You're folding clothes at, at, at thrift stores. You're, you're feeding the homeless, but you're really dead on the inside. So you look like you're doing things a church should do, but you're actually dead. I believe the American church, if not careful, we will construct $30 million buildings to fit thousands of people so the dead can come worship. If we're not careful and we don't make disciples, we'll construct giant cathedrals with huge steeples where the the whitewashed tombs can come and sing praise. We've got to be careful. See, to me, it doesn't matter if we worship in a charter school multipurpose room or when we get our own building, it'll just be a tool. It'll just be a tool. Even my son this morning said, are we going back to the charter school or the hotel? Because they're real confused about where church is. They're very confused. And, and I said, well, honey, the church isn't a building. The church is people. And he goes, that doesn't make any sense. And, and I said, the, the church is a group of people. It's not a building. The church was never meant, ever, ever, ever meant by Jesus to be a building. Not one verse in the Bible does Jesus say, buy sheetrock at Lowe's. Not one verse. We've got to be careful, church. The church at Sardis was asleep. They were dead. In fact, if you study out Sardis, you'll find out that they were so lazy, their city had actually been besieged twice because the watchmen on the wall were asleep. So Jesus is telling them, and I love how God just speaks to us right where we are, don't you? He knows that they all know that they're embarrassed by being besieged twice because they were asleep. And then he says, wake up because he knew they would understand that language. Wake up, wake up, the battle plan. Wake up and strengthen all that remains before it dies, and then remember all the things you've received and heard, then turn back or repent to God and obey them. The message translation says it this way, up on your feet, take a deep breath, maybe there's life in you yet but I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's work has been completed. See, you and I, we're okay with serving the church once a month if it fits into our schedule. But what he's asking for is complete abandon to the things of God. I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's work's been completed. Your condition is desperate. Think of the gift you once had in your hands, the message you heard with your ears. Grasp that message again and turn back to God. So back to our table. The church of Sardis doing good things for the kingdom. Going through the motions though, and they're asleep spiritually. They wear the dream team shirt, but they can't tell you anything about last week's message. What is God doing in them? No one knows because they're asleep. They're indifferent, they're apathetic. Wake up and strengthen what remains. 
remember and repent. Now to the last church as we prepare to close, the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3, 15 through 17, I know all that you do, and I know that you are neither frozen in apathy nor fervent with passion. How I wish you were one or the other, but because you're neither cold nor hot but lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you claim I'm rich and I'm getting richer, I don't need a thing. Yet you're clueless that you're miserable, poor, blind, barren, and naked. Did you notice Jesus didn't even say a nice thing to this church? He hates lukewarm. In the NIV it says, this is the one that you might be more familiar with, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were at one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. See, what I love about this is, this is not a complete rejection. Jesus gives them a call to repent and return to a place of being passionate and zealous for God. But the Aramaic here uses an idiom that can mean I'm about to reprimand you. So somebody, I heard a sermon one time that was a little off base when it said, if you're not hot, then God rejects you. I'm like, that's not biblical. He always gives you a way back in. Aren't you glad for that? He's so good. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth as an Aramaic idiom, which means I'm about to reprimand you or come over here, you're getting a spanking. So that, that's what that means. It doesn't mean like I'm done with you. That's not what that means. Jesus uses language they totally understand. He's so good. Laodicea was a very wealthy banking center, was a textile manufacturing center, and had a huge medical community. Had a, they, they had everything they wanted, but they had a water problem. They had a water issue. North of them was a city that had hot springs, and everybody talked about it. South of them was a city with cool rivers, and everybody talked about it. But Laodicea? Nothing. This makes sense to me being raised in West Texas where there's no water, no trees, no life, just pump jacks and jackrabbits. We had to pump our water from a lake that was two and a half hours away, a man-made lake. By the time the water reached Odessa, it was disgusting, and the water treatment plant, if you drove by the water treatment plant, it smelled like rotten eggs. Right, babe, it was disgusting. Like, you'd want to puke in your car. It was gross. Just to make it usable. And when you drive through cities in, near San Antonio and you see that sign that says, Superior Public Water Supply, have y'all seen those signs? When you drive into Odessa, it says, Acceptable. <laughs> it doesn't say anything else. It just says, You might not die if you drink this water. Laodicea understood this. I understood this. Laodicea understood this. They had to pump in their water from underground aqueducts. By the time the water reached Laodicea, it was stale, lukewarm, and had a nauseating smell or taste. So Jesus starts talking to them about water because he knows they're gonna understand it. Laodicea, in verse 17, we know that they had absorbed local values, especially pride. They were materially proud but spiritually blind. Does that sound like a certain country in the world to you right now? The battle plan was Revelation 3.18. So I counsel you to purchase gold perfected by fire so that you can be truly rich. 
Purchase a white garment to cover and clothe your shameful Adam nakedness. Purchase eye salve to be placed over your eyes so that you can truly see. No, Jesus is not starting a multi-level marketing scheme. Is Jesus telling them to go buy these things? No. No, he's not. Again, you gotta study it. You gotta study what these things mean. They would have understood what these things mean, what these meant, because Laodicea in their medical community, were, they were famous for their eye salve, which had healing properties. He's telling them things that they understand. But the, the, the root here is that gold represents King Jesus, that Christ will be your sustainer and your gold, that the wealth of Christ is not purchased with all the money you have, but with faith. White garments means purity and righteousness. Go purify yourself. And the eye salve was to receive true spiritual vision because you're blind to your condition. Jesus is calling them back to himself. They've indulged in pride. They've indulged in self-sufficiency. And he's calling them back to himself. He's so good, isn't he? He makes a way for them to come back. So back to our table. I know it's getting a little small to read. But you can take a picture of it you want, or you can call the office and we'll send it to you. But Laodicea, they're doing good things for the kingdom. Don't you see that in a lot of the other churches? They're doing good things for the kingdom. They're doing good stuff. But they're lukewarm. They're deceived, and they're prideful. Their root sin is they're blind to their condition. They're blind to their condition. And Jesus tells them to change your priorities and go after Jesus. That's what the gold and the white garments and the eye salve is about. Change your priorities by gold, white garments, and eye salve. Go after me. Go after me. So leave this up here for a second. If Jesus was writing a letter to the church at San Antonio, to the church at San Antonio, I write to you. You're really good at including people. You're a fun city. You like to party, but you're not a rowdy crowd like Oakland. You actually have fun without burning things down. The Spurs can win a championship and nobody dies. Good for you, San Antonio. You have good churches on every corner, but this I have against you. You've left your first love. You've built huge buildings for me, but you don't remember why. You've held to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans and you believe that it can be Jesus plus something else, but it's really Jesus only. You've tolerated Jezebel and you've tolerated sin for far too long and you've started going through the motions and you're asleep spiritually and you're lukewarm and you're prideful about it and you're deceived and blind to your true condition. To the church at San Antonio, I tell you, to repent of your being distracted and being compromised. Repent of being tolerant of sin and come to me and be holy and righteous yet again. Repent of your indifference and your apathy because you're blind to your condition. You must repent and return to your first love and your first passion so that you can be strong and resolute and full of life and joy and meaning. To the church at San Antonio, there is power available, but we must first repent. We must first repent of, of wanting church our way instead of 
What is God calling us to do? We must first repent of our laziness. We must first repent of just trying to fit church into our schedules because at least it's the right thing to do. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross and raised from the dead to build buildings. He died on the cross and raised from the dead three days later to make disciples. And the disciples were often called zealots. And I remember we had a family member one time tell Kelly, so you actually believe this stuff. In fact, if I, if I remember his exact words were, oh, you're one of those. You're a zealot. You're one of those people. You mean you want my life calendar to revolve around God's calendar? You mean you want my family to be involved to the level where my kids just, what they see is church, and church not as a checklist thing, but it is life? I think what God would say to us here is that there's a battle plan to declaring war on casual Christianity. And we declare war on apathy and indifference today. And I want you to see it and see it clearly that apathy may, may have found its way into your life. Apathy may have found a way in, but we declare war in this culture war, we declare war on the distracted, compromised, tolerant, indifferent, and lukewarm spirits that have infiltrated our lives, our marriages, and our churches. We will repent, we will wake up, we will strengthen what remains, we will remember all God has saved us from and done for us, and we will go after Jesus with all we've got yet again because that is the only way to get out of our slumber, is to, to get out of our slumber. We, we, we go after the things of God. The next time the church announces a deeper night of worship, you rearrange your schedule and get there, because it's that important. You should have been in the presence of God last Wednesday. It was so powerful. There was such a sweet spirit in the room. I challenge you, the next time we talk about small groups, you're getting in one which they're open right now. They've only been open a week. Go get in a small group. Get in a small group. When the church talks about baptisms, if you've not yet been baptized or you were sprinkled as a baby and now you want to do it for real as an adult, jump in. Don't literally jump in like we'll help you. But get baptized. There's, there's no greater way to live life than living life all out for the kingdom of God. And I will preach that till the day I die. Kelly and I did not give our lives to be your weekend event planners. We have no desire in making your weekend fun for you. We hope church is fun for you, but we did not give our lives to plan a church so Sundays could be a blast. We did it so that your life could look like Jesus and sometimes that takes messages like, this I have against you. This is, this is the change that Jesus is wanting to see. I mean, because we're your pastors and, and, and not your tour guides for Sunday, we love you enough to tell you the truth. We love you, and we want to see your life radically transformed by the power of God.
So to the church at San Antonio, to the church in Live Oak, to the church in Shirts and Selma, Cibolo and Converse and Universal City, to the church in New Braunfels, I write, repent and return. Repent and return to your first love. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? God, we repent and return. We repent and return. Do something in us, God, that is radically life-changing. God, may we not live apathetically anymore. May we not live indifferent to the things of God. May we never treat the sacred things of God as commonplace ever again. But may we, all out with all we've got, pursue the living God. May we live righteous lives. That doesn't mean perfect. It just means in right relationship to God. May we live lives of repentance. Not just repent one time, but live lives of repentance. Where we're every day changing the way we think, putting on the mind of Christ. God, I believe that our marriages will see breakthrough when husbands and wives chase after God together. I believe our church will see revival unlike ever before when we act like the upper room Christians and we wait on God in prayer and in unity. I believe there'll be exponential increase to the kingdom of God when a select few consecrate themselves to chase after God more than anything else. So God, we repent today. We repent. Forgive us for our sin. Church, would you repeat after me? Some of you are about to meet Jesus for the first time and some of you are repenting of your sin and coming back to him. Whatever the case, this is your moment. This is your moment. Say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. I repent of my apathetic approach to you. Forgive me for my indifference. May I never treat you as common again. I make you my Lord and my King. Thank you for saving me. I know that your word tells me that I am made a brand new creation. So I declare it boldly today that I am a child of God and I'll never be the same. Never, never, never in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Come on, give God praise today. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Church Podcast. If God used this message to impact your life, tell us your story by emailing mystory@thepurposechurch.com. Be sure to follow us on social media and check out our website at thepurposechurch.com to get connected and receive all the latest information.